right, go ahead and grab a handout and take a seat. We're continuing in our eschatology study. Somebody remind me what eschatology is. The study of end times. Atta girl, Joe. Good job. The study of end times. And last week we talked about the day of the Lord. Um, and we will touch on some aspects of that today. But before we really get into it, um, I wanted to let's see. I wonder if I gave my handout to somebody else that had notes on it. Anybody else have a handout that has writing on it already? You do? You have mine? Or that's yours? Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's mine either. Yeah, that's somebody else's. <laughs> All right. Well, it's floating around out there somewhere. Um, but I wanted to ask if you guys could just think back on uh, the most cataclysmic, dramatic, drastic, bloodiest event in your lifetime, let's say in the last century. <coughs> what would you guys come up with? Jerry, bubonic plague? Remember Shaq Ezekiel? The one from 1980? <laughs> <laughs> Civil War was pretty <laughs> Civil War? That yeah, was pretty bloody, right? What'd you say? All right. Walker said 9-11. Anybody else? Tsunami. Yeah, tsunamis are often pretty bad. Well, we don't know about much about it. What tsunami did in Russia is beyond our comprehension. Yeah. And people often bring up Hitler and Stalin far surpassed Hitler, didn't they? Yeah, so much evil and wickedness in the world. Um, what if we were to extend that just even beyond the last century to the history of the world? What would you guys think would be the most cataclysmic event you could think of in history? What was that? The Holocaust, but I might not be here compared to everything. We'll just talk about that. God's blood. I was listening. Genesis 7 through 9. All right, that is quite cataclysmic, isn't it? The flood. Not too bloody, but probably pretty cataclysmic. He did spare a whole eight people, so there's that. But other than that, that was pretty brutal, pretty cataclysmic. Uh, today we're going to be getting into Matthew 24, and we're going to talk about. Uh, cataclysmic events that surpass even the flood. So that's quite something to say for sure. Before we do that, let's go ahead and open up in prayer and we'll jump in. God, we do thank you for your grace, for your love. We thank you for your mercy that we see even in uh, terrible tragedies of World War II and Stalin and uh, 9-11 and the flood. The fact that you still are good and gracious and loving, and you still brought man through, even though we are fallen and undeserving. God, we pray as we open up your word today and we look into things that are difficult to understand, that you would give us wisdom and insight, that you would help us to make connections uh, in scripture that are consistent with, uh, with your will, with your truth, and the way that you have revealed things to us. And we pray that throughout all this, that you would give us a 
greater appreciation for you, that you would cause us to worship you, and that you would be high and lifted up. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we are talking about eschatology. We're going to talk specifically about the words of Jesus. Next week we'll get into Daniel a little bit more. But before we do that, we've been going over the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be a time of great tribulation for all peoples as never seen in the world. This day is when God pours out his wrath. We talked in the last couple of weeks about how specifically this wrath is initially poured out upon Israel. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. And uh, it's a, a wrath that will spread to all nations that nobody's really going to escape. But it will be poured out upon everybody who's upon the earth at that time. Uh, again, initially starting off with the Jewish race. For the day to begin, there will be an apostasy. The man of sin will make a covenant and stand in the temple, and the restrainer will be removed. Anybody remember where we read about that? Bible. The Bible. Good job, Rex. <laughs> you taught those kids' classes for quite a long time, didn't you? That's all I remember. All right. Second Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2. We talked about that a little bit uh, last week and the week before, and I'm sure we will get into that throughout the rest of our study as well. All right. Jesus teaches on the end times most clearly and comprehensively in Matthew 24, and that's where we're going to be today. Um, you can also find the same sermon in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Uh, so those are good cross-references. We might make our way there throughout our study a little bit. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And even before we get into Matthew 24, I want to go back to Matthew 23 a little bit because that ties in with some of the recent teachings that we've had, um, starting in verse 37. This is after Jesus has already come to um, his people. Uh, this is at the very tail end of his ministry and for the last couple of chapters, he's been hitting pretty hard on um, the, the Jewish people and their need to repent and their failure to repent. And he says, starting verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see there just this culmination of Jerusalem, uh, of Israel's uh, neglect of their Savior. That they have rejected the Messiah and their house is being left to them desolate forever. Yes, no, maybe? No. No. What does it say? <clears throat> How long is their house being left to them desolate? Do you say? All right. That great phrase right there, until, right? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we've been looking at this pretty intensely as we've been going through Romans 9, 10, and 11, how the rejection of Israel... Um, of their Messiah is what has allowed the, the Gentiles to be grafted in, right? 
that their rejection has allowed for our salvation, but they will not um, be unable to be grafted back in themselves. They themselves are the natural branches and will be grafted back in. And they will one day come to that point where they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So with that said, let's jump into 24. Uh, This is known as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has just left the temple, or he's getting ready to leave the temple in the the text, the temple that he had just went in and um, cleansed. Just a few hours earlier, he'd gone in, cleansed the temple, overturned the tables, and now he's back because it's his temple, right? And so he's back there and he was teaching, and he leaves to the Mount of Olives where we get uh, this dialogue, this discourse, this really answer that Jesus gives to the disciples, the longest answer we find throughout all of the Gospels. And we're going to get into that and read it together. Um, There is great disagreement among Christians concerning how the details found in these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, play out in human history. Um, We have a, a great group of people who will say that a lot of this is referring to 70 AD and has already taken place. As I mentioned last week, there are some who... I have a hard time looking at as brothers who will say that this has all taken place, that we would call them full preterists, say that Jesus has already completed all this stuff, that 100% of it has taken place. Jesus has already come back and returned. We're not looking for a return of Christ. Uh, that is not orthodox, biblical, um, historically biblical teaching. <laughs> and as always, it's our goal to understand the intended meaning of the author. What is it that Jesus was saying, what is it that Matthew is trying to communicate? I was just going to add that that full uh, preterism position, believing that Jesus has already returned, that he returned in 70 AD. That's where Sean McCraney is now, for those of you who know that name. He's gone off the deep end in a variety of ways, and that's one of the ways. Yeah. He's opened his own heretical school, right? So... Don't join that, because we don't want to become heretics. All right. Matthew 24, 1 through 8. Could I get somebody to read that, please? Matthew 24, 1 through 8. 1 through 8? Yes, please. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, do not, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. We're seeing that now, aren't we? Yes. Just the beginning of birth pains. All right, so again, this is right when Jesus comes out of the temple, the temple that he had recently cleansed. 
and um, he was going away from the temple when his disciples point out the temple buildings to him. Uh, we read over in Mark 13, again, a parallel passage. Uh, verse 1, it says that he was going out of the temple. One of, his, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So they're marveling at the beauty and the grandeur of the temple. And how does Jesus respond to them saying, Hey, look how, how great this temple is, these temple buildings are. Not for long. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, right? Um, he said, not one of these stones will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So they're all going to be torn down and demolished, which was an absolutely astounding thought for them. These are 20, 30 foot wide stones that are stacked upon one another. Tons and tons of rock that is stacked up in an incredible way. He says, not one of these stones is going to be left on one another. And it absolutely did come to pass not long after in 70 AD. And that's why a lot of people will point and say that all these things in this whole passage are taking place in 70 AD because this first section, which is referring to the temple, did take place in 70 AD. And it was such a great um, prophecy, a great fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy uh, that not one stone would be left upon another. They came in and they absolutely demolished it. This temple was a center of commerce for the whole city. And there was gold inlaid in between each of the stones. And so when Rome came in, they had an absolute hatred for the Jewish people, a hatred for Jerusalem. They wanted to demolish every inch that they possibly could and gather all that gold they could. And so it came about exactly as Jesus had said. Not one stone would be left upon the other. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And they said, tell us. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, um, first we see Jesus was not impressed with the temples, right? He recognized that there's a, a temporality to them. He is the creator of all things, right? He is the one who holds all things together. And then, uh, oh, also we see um, recorded by Joseph that... Um, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed, that the Roman general set fire to the temple, dismantled it all, exactly as Jesus had said that he would. All right, so what are the three questions that the disciples are asking here in verse 3? In verse 3. All right, so when are these things going to take place? What things were they asking about? Oh, they were asking about the, the temple, right? They're like, this beautiful temple. And Jesus said, no, it's not going to be around for long. And they're like, okay, well, when? So when it's the first question, what else do they ask in verse 3? All right. The signs of your coming. All right. And of the end of the age, right? So these are three separate questions that they're asking. In their mind, I don't think that they were separate questions, but... They come across to us in the pages of Scripture as separate questions. Uh, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus doesn't answer the when question in this passage. He starts to touch on it a little bit in verse 36 and following, but he doesn't answer specifically. He doesn't give anybody a, a day or an hour. 
From verse 4, Jesus describes the signs that will precede his coming and signal the end of the age. Again, there is no start date given. So, what signs precede the end that we just read through in those first eight verses? What are the signs that precede the end? Wars. Good. Yeah. Many people come. So we have successful false Christs. They will deceive many. Wars and rumors of wars. What else do we see? All right. In verse 7, famines and earthquakes. And where are these famines and earthquakes going to take place? Yeah, in various places, right? That's one of the reasons that I don't think it was just an isolated um, judgment that was isolated just to Jerusalem, just to Israel. But it's all over these famines and earthquakes are taking place. We see antagonistic nations and kingdoms. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, right? Various famines, various earthquakes. Uh, once again, this goes right along with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks with the day of the Lord. It doesn't sound very pleasant, right? Not something that we're envious of, that we want to be a part of. And we don't believe that we will. So that is good. But remember that these are the signs. Um, verse 8 says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So this is just starting a talking about the, the start, about the beginning, not about the most intense aspect of the day of the Lord. So, Rex, you said, we're already seeing these things in some respect, right? Or alluded to it. Um, does that mean that the end is near? Because we're already seeing these things. Well, yeah, depends on how we understand. <laughs> Joel said the day of the Lord was near. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll look at that a little bit later, hopefully, if we manage our well. Yeah, all throughout the, the minor prophets, the major prophets, um, Jesus, they all said, the end is near, the end is coming, right? And we are in the last days. Jesus said that the last days are here. And so, in one respect, yes, they're near, but that does not mean that we are like right on the cuffs and Tuesday Jesus is going to be standing in Missouri because that's not happening right? um, <laughs> that's the first place I go yeah. you've got Taco Tuesday and then you've got Rapture Wednesday <laughs> uh, yeah not this week well maybe this week but oh uh, wow alright so in one respect they have been near for a long time right um there are several verses about the, the imminent return of Christ and the fact that he can come back at uh, nearly any time. Um, let's see, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Will somebody grab that verse real quick? Who's got Hebrews 10? I get it. All right, and then while he's turning there, will somebody grab Philippians three twenty? Who can get that? Jerry. All right, will somebody get James 5, 8? Yeah. All right. And 1 Peter 4 7. Who has 1 Peter 4 7? All right, Jim, thank you. All right, uh, Jeremy, go ahead with Hebrews 10 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. So he's encouraging them, first century, that the day is drawing near. He had that understanding. What about Philippians 3.20? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, Lord all right, eagerly waiting. And what does James have to say on the subject? James 5.8. 5, 5.8. 5, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. All right. And Peter, what's his understanding? First uh, Peter 4.7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. All right, so we see author Hebrews, see Paul, see James, see Peter, saying that the end is at hand, the end is near, the Lord is near, um, that we are to wait for our Savior. And then at the very end, uh, John, in Revelation twenty two twenty, he says that he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So even in the first century, the disciples of Jesus had an understanding that Christ's return was imminent at any moment. So, uh, Rapture Wednesday isn't entirely out of the question, right? We should still have that same kind of understanding ourselves that Jesus can come back at any moment. But these other things that we're reading about, they are not going to happen until after Jesus has come back and until other things have taken place later on in this passage that we need to hurry and get to. All right, so any other thoughts or questions on those first eight verses before we move on? There is a lot here. We're going to be flying through it. All right, time's up. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Will somebody read that, please? 24, 9 through 14. I'll go ahead and grab it. I'll read it. Jeremy's got it. (laughs) Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right. Again. There's a lot there. But what is the significance of the then in verse 9? We see a couple of thens in that passage, but what about the one in verse 9? Why is that important? All right, so we're getting a a timeline here, right? That some things have to take place first, and then other things will happen, uh, like you said, sequentially. So then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, You will be hated because of my name. Now, who is the you that we see in this verse? How should we understand this you in this verse? The Israelis. Israelis, all right. He's talking talking to uh, a specific talking about a specific people. 
Um, a lot of people will say that he's talking to the disciples, and this is directly related to the disciples. Um, this is why I wish I had my notes that I lost. But in Luke 21, 20, starting in verse 10. Yeah, but I'm not right there, I don't think. <coughs> I don't know. Any other thoughts on the U <laughs> while I look for that? <laughs> None? See, maybe it was in Mark that I was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking Mark 13. That's where I'm at. Mark 13, 3 says that as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so same scenario, same situation, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. So we know those four were there, right? Um, but... We also know that Acts was written in 62 AD, and Acts records the death of Peter and also of James, and that John was likely the only one out of those who would have seen uh, 70 AD. So again, I don't think this is all referring to 70 AD. I think 70 AD is just a reference to the destruction of the temple, that Jesus is validating and verifying that what he is about to say is prophetic because anybody could make any kind of claim that, you know, um, 200 years from now, the Iraqis are going to control the world, right? They're going to be the the global empire, but there's no way to verify that. And so because Jesus was making these prophetic claims that were so far out, uh, he was using a a nearer prophetic sign that would verify and validate his authenticity to be able to make such a claim that would be otherwise unverifiable. So I think that's what he was doing. Um, And he wasn't merely speaking to the disciples, not just to those four who were asking him that question. But as Jerry said, I think he has a a larger group in view. All right, and then while pinning down a time for the text is difficult, we recognize that there is an already and a not yet aspect that there is a sense in which these people that he was speaking to, they did suffer a, a martyr's death, right? Um, these people I mentioned in Paul, in, in Acts rather, uh, Peter and James, they did suffer a martyr's death. And so in one respect, they were martyred, but not in this great tribulation type of sense. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in this passage. Other thoughts on that, who he's talking to and how that relates to what we're seeing, yeah. My, my, my Bible makes a reference to Matthew ten seventeen. They sent out the twelve. Said, "Beware of them. What beware of men? They will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles." Okay. So yeah, I think that's where we're seeing the already not yet aspect. So there's definitely a sense in which. He is speaking to them, but I think it goes out beyond them. He's not just speaking to them, and all these things aren't just going to take place um, to, they're not just going to happen to them and to them alone. Yeah, the, the difficulty is, if, this, if these are future events that are happening uh, well into the future when the whole world is enduring a time of God's wrath and judgment, then the you in verse 9 following can't be them 
It can't be the, the immediate ones because we're talking way in the future when all this stuff is going to spread throughout the whole world. And so that, that creates an issue. If you put it all in the first century, that, then you say, oh, well, he's just talking to the ones who are right in front of him. But as we've seen, because of the sequential nature of the events that are going to happen and the worldwide effects that are happening in various places, it does seem like something that's happening in the future. So even though the disciples would experience a taste of this, they weren't the ultimate fulfillment of this. And there are a lot of reasons. So this is why we all disagree. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of reasons uh, textually and historically to look at 780 and really question, okay, well, what is going on there? What is happening? Uh, and I listened to a few post-millennialists this week, and they had some pretty convincing arguments, and we're going to get into those shortly, and I'm going to um, give you my understanding of what their greatest arguments were. But there is great reason why there's such disagreement, because it's not absolutely clear. And from our perspective, it's still yet future and yet to take place, so it's hard to be absolutely dogmatic about it. We shouldn't uh, be too separatistic about it, because... We're not 100% sure. But, I, didn't, I didn't hear what Jerry said about the U. Does that pertain to Israel? Pardon? Israel. Israel, you think it is? doesn't belong, uh, pertain to those who are followers of Christ from his resurrection to his return? I think they're going to be spared from all of this. So if, we're, if this is viewed as the day of the Lord, from a pre-tribulational rapture perspective, the church is gone. So then he's dealing with Israel during the day of the Lord. So that would be, they would be the definition of you. But brief, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's either an event that's undefined in the future or it's an event that's 2,000 years in our history. So either way, we're really far removed. <laughs> and it's hard to, hard to grasp it. Yeah. Well, let's move on and see if we can gain some more insight because of verse, well, we'll get to verse 15 in a minute, I guess. Um, but here we see the, the already aspect from their perspective, that the Galatian believers, they were told that they were to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations in Acts 14.22. So in that sense, and again, um, just as I mentioned, James and Peter, they entered the kingdom through tribulation. Uh, all the disciples, minus John, and he still went through tribulation, right? He just didn't have his life taken from him. Um, but in one sense, everybody who desires to live a, a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. However, that's not the tribulation that is in view um, in this chapter. So, how are we doing with verse 14, which talks about taking the gospel to all the world? I think we could always be doing better. Uh, a lot of people will point to uh, Colossians 1 and say that, the world had already been evangelized in Paul's day. I don't think that that's a great argument. Um, the Ask Pastor John podcast just came out with a podcast on this this last week, so that would be a good resource to check out for that. Um, and I think ultimately, Revelation 14 talks about the one of the angels. He's going to go out throughout all the world and proclaim the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I think it's likely that that might be what's in view here when every... The gospel is going to be preached to everybody. So not that we shouldn't be doing our part to, to share our faith. We should absolutely be doing that. But I think in the end, um, this angel of the Lord we read about in Revelation 14, he's going to take a stab at it and do a pretty good job. Is that right in verses 6 and 7 in Revelation? Um, probably. It's in the first quarter of the chapter. Let me 
open it up and I'll read it for us. Revelation yeah, 14, 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. All right. So jumping into 2415, we're going to look at um, this particular period of time, which starts with the abomination of desolation. That's what's going to launch off the great tribulation. So verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So this abomination of desolation is launching into the great tribulation. Um, Daniel chapter 11 talks about this, um, pointing most likely forward to Antiochus Epiphanes, who went into the temple and uh, he desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig in the Jewish temple. Um, he took pork and forced the priest to eat the pork. And this is, you can read about it from the, the Maccabees, part of the apocryphal books that document the 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. Um, but it's believed that uh, that reference in Daniel 11 is talking about him. And so we should be looking for something similar with this abomination and desolation um, in the future. Verse 16 says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. But for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So, how does Jesus refer to this period in verse 21? It's a great tribulation. What do we know about this great tribulation? How great is it? Yeah. Worse than the flood, even. Anything that has taken place, anything that ever will take place. Um, so I'm absolutely not denying that what took place in 70 AD was a dramatic, cataclysmic, um, destructive event. But it was not the greatest cataclysmic event in all of history. It's not worse than anything that has taken place up until that point or ever will. But this local. Great Tribulation will be. What's yes, that? that was just local too. Uh -huh. 80, 70. And here they're talking about the entire world. Yeah, various famines, various floods all over the place. And I'm kind of rushing through this because I want to get into Isaiah and see that even more clearly. Uh, what point is Jesus making with all these word pictures? Leading up to verse 21, what's he getting at? Very big and disastrous. Big and disastrous, right? They're not going to want to be around for it, right? They're going to want to get out of Dodge, right? Dodge. Yeah, Dodge Town. Yeah, he's also emphasizing that there is going to be a specific event that triggers the worst. Absolutely. 
time to grab your coat. Assuming that everybody's going to know about this, which is a time seems a little far, but now it seems really yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah, even a couple hundred years ago, it would be hard to imagine a, a worldwide event that would be known by everybody, right? <laughs> Uh, we'll get into this a little bit more, this abomination and desolation next week. You can read up on um, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13. Those are all good places to go to read up on that because we have not given it the time that it deserves. All right, looking at verses 22 through 28. Will somebody read those for us, please? And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right, thank you. All right, so describe some of the characteristics of the Great Tribulation. What are some of the things we see there? worse than the tribulation <coughs> just before that because you got the tribulation three and a half years later you've got the great yeah it will be intensified absolutely and it's a lot of the same disastrous. stuff just amplified yeah the stuff we were looking at before it was just the beginning of birth pains right now we're really getting into the great tribulation but yeah a lot of overlap false Christ and false prophets yeah, and they will deceive many, and they will have the ability to have great signs and wonders, right? Which is... Uh, Pretty convincing. It is convincing, right? Especially for cessationists. We're like, oh, wow, <laughs> what is that? Uh, but we've been told ahead of time. It's going to be pretty bad, isn't it? In fact, he says it's going to be so bad that it had those days not been cut short, um, there would be no life left. Um, so that could either be talking about the number of days cut short down to the 1,260 days, the three and a half years, or the actual length of the days themselves. We read about these cataclysmic cosmic events where uh, the sun and the moon and the stars are going to lose a third of their light or two-thirds of their light. And so people think, well, maybe the actual length of days are going to be cut down. And instead of having 16 hours of daylight, they'll have four or five hours of daylight. And if that were not the case, then everybody would have been destroyed. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And just to highlight that... Um, those false Christs who mislead people, they're unable to mislead the elect because the elect 
um, are going to persevere as the holy saints of Christ. All right, since the elect will be present, we can understand that either the saved will enter into this tribulation or people will be saved during it. Uh, we hope to the latter. There are going to be people who are going to be saved during this tribulation event. In fact, a lot of people will be saved during this tribulation event. Uh, we've alluded to the fact before that we think that these saints are going to be distinct from the church, that the church refers to those who are saved in between um, Acts chapter 2 and the resurrection and we as a church will not be around for that. We will either die natural deaths or be resurrected out uh, with the church of that time. How do we reconcile our belief that Jesus is speaking of an event still future to us, but is speaking to you in the text? I think we've kind of talked about this already not yet aspect and um, how he can be speaking to them and speaking to us um, at the same time, throughout the passage of time, and how even going on into verses that we're not really going to get into, again, starting in verse 36 and through the rest of the chapter, he's going to um, bring out some application about how we need to be ready, we need to be prepared, we need to have this same kind of view of the imminent return of Christ that uh, Peter, James, and John, and the rest all had, even in the first century. All right, verses 29 through 31. I'll go ahead and read that says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, again, the, um, the timeline is unfolding, right? We see more um, sequential language here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to another. Now, this is where we as pre-tribulational dispensationalists, we say, well, this hasn't happened, right? Um, and a lot of the people that I was telling you about before that I was listening to earlier this week, they would say, well, what this is here, this is just dramatic, prophetic hyperbole, that this is just speaking in great kind of wartime language, um, that this is prophetic language. And they'll point to Old Testament passages <laughs> in Isaiah. So I want to go and look at some of those passages that they were pointing at, because again, they had rather convincing arguments. So let's turn over to Isaiah 13, where Christ is quoting from, and look at some of the arguments that they would make about this just being dramatic, prophetic hyperbole, which is language God often uses when engaging in warfare. So in Isaiah 13, we see at the very first, verse 1, that this is an oracle concerning Babylon. So it's a localized place, right? One nation of Babylon it's talking about is what they'll say. And then they'll go down to verse 6 and they'll say, um, that it says, well, the day of the Lord is near, right? It's close. So Babylon is going to be destroyed soon. It's near. And its destruction will come from the Almighty. Looking at verse 9, it says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land, that is Babylon, a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. 
The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Well, that sounds really similar to what we just read about in Matthew 24, which we say is pointing forward to the future. And they're saying, well, this kind of language is used of Babylon in the past. This is just dramatic, prophetic hyperbole. That's just the way that God speaks when nations are being destroyed. But as we've been saying for a few weeks now, I think that when we look at prophecy, we can understand there is both a near and a far fulfillment, that God is using a near event to, um, to kind of picture or typify what he's going to be doing in the future. And if we keep reading in this passage, I think we'll see that. Um, so Isaiah 13 verse 11 says, thus I will punish the world, right? Not just Babylon, but I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Um, not just the proud of Babylon, but the proud, right? And abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. So, again, we have different perspectives, tons of different uh, ways to look at Matthew 24, but I think that even going back to Matthew 13, we can see that this is going beyond just Babylon. Turn with me over to Isaiah 19. We'll see something similar. Another verse I heard referenced several times this week. Isaiah 19, verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. So another localized uh, destruction. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Again, prophetic language, similar to what we see in Matthew 24. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And so they'll say, look, he's just talk talking to Egypt. Um, Jesus wasn't riding on a cloud there, so he won't be riding on a cloud in the future. But um, turn over with me and look at verse 16. I'm going to read for a little bit here. Uh, starting in verse 16, it says, In that day the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah, talking about Israel, right, will become a terror to Egypt. Uh, before it talks about how Egypt is a terror or dread to Israel, but Judah here is going to become a terror to Egypt, this much greater, stronger nation. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it, because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh, in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near its borders. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, and they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship and sacrifice and with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, 
so that they will return to the Lord. He will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So I absolutely see this, especially latter portion, as talking about this time of distress, this time of the great tribulation where God is going to pour out his wrath on people leading into the millennium where he is going to be worshipped, he is going to be lifted up. The Egyptians and Assyrians, they are going to call upon Yahweh and they're going to worship him together. I think this has uh, far-reaching effects, I guess, or applications. I don't know. It goes beyond just Egypt in that day. Uh, One more in Isaiah, Isaiah 34. Isaiah chapter 34. Again, this is what I've been told by by others who have different beliefs, is just dramatic prophetic hyperbole, similar to what we see in Matthew 24, saying, well, Jesus was only talking about the destruction of Israel and the temple. And so they'll point to verses like Isaiah 34, verse 4, which says, And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, all the hosts will be will wither away as a leaf withers from a vine and one withers from a fig tree. My sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. So they're saying this is just a rebuke against Edom. And it still uses that phenomenal, phenomenological language um, that's hyperbolic, just exaggerating, talking about uh, the sky being rolled up and... Um, all these great, terrible things. But if you keep going and finish verse 5, it says, upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. So not just upon Edom, but also upon the people that have been devoted to destruction. And if you go back up and look at verses 1 and 2, he starts off this section by saying, draw near, O nations, and hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all that it contains here, and the world and all that it springs forth, For the Lord's indignation is against all of the nations, not just against Edom, but it's against all of the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So, um, again, I think there are some convincing arguments and there definitely are some things in Matthew 24 that relate to the temple. I think that Jesus is once again verifying the fact that he's going to give this amazing prophetic declaration by saying, look, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be standing upon another. And even beyond that, you guys asked about what is the sign of your coming? Well, let me tell you, there are going to be these great and terrible things um, that the Son of Man is going to come riding on the clouds, that the sun and the moon will uh, be darkened, that the stars will fall. And I don't think that it's something that's just hyperbolic. I don't think it's something that's allegorical. I think it's truly going to take place. So, If you're not already back in Matthew 24 with me, go ahead and turn back there. And um, in this section, 29 through 31, what is the most basic timeline that we can establish as it pertains to the second coming? What can we expect? What can we look forward to? This part is saying that Jesus will come back from heaven. Yes. We have a, a whole list of characteristics that will accompany that. 
All right, so before that, we haven't really gotten into in our study the, the rapture, but again, by this point, the church will be gone. Um, and then shortly after that, the, the tribulation will take place. And in verse 15, the abomination desolation, that's what really sparks it. Right before that, there's uh, a little taste, a little hint of some birth pangs leading up to that. But then the abomination desolation, that launches things off. Yes. Question. So we're talking about you've got the tribulation three and a half years. Then my understanding is that Satan then is kicked out of heaven. He will enter the man of lawlessness. And then you'll have the great tribulation. Or is it just something I read in the comic book? I'm not sure. Does that sound right? Does it sound close? <laughs> I don't know. Kicked out of heaven. I'm trying to, I'm having a hard time placing that. What are you thinking there? That Satan will be kicked out of heaven. Well, isn't there the part where I thought I've read somewhere where it says that Satan, I think, local religion believes that this is kicked out of heaven, but he was allowed back in heaven because that's when Job and everything else. But when he is, there's a war in heaven, doesn't that occur? And then he is kicked out of heaven, not to return, but is placed permanently on the earth. Well, I'm not sure about that. Ooh, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a passage that would probably let us up for that. Revelation 12. Yeah, I think that's probably going back before um, before this time period. But yeah, Revelation 12, that does sound right there in the middle of tribulation stuff. Yeah. I imagine that's where it comes from. Yeah, possibly. But yeah, um, Satan's definitely going to influence this man of lawlessness. Again, we're going to get into that a little bit more later. But he's the one who's going to spark all these different things coming about. Um, and then things will get worse and worse and worse. And Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom. Right? Well, it's very clearly talking about, I mean, 29 to 31 is very clearly talking about his coming back, his final coming back. When he starts elaborating on it in verse 36, he has a bit of a, a side in the sermon, 32 to 35. But he comes back to it, and he talks about what's going to happen when he comes back. And that's where you see verse 40, two men in a field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. And it's clearly talking about his coming, the Lord's coming. Uh, so he elaborates on it later in the sermon. Yeah. And that taking and being left, that's not a reference to the rapture. A lot of people will see that there. That's a reference to judgment. That one's going to be taken to judgment. Another's going to be left, unjudged. Another is going to be taken to judgment. So but that, that don't see the rapture there. That didn't happen in the first century. No. So that's, I mean, he elaborates on what he's talking about. And it's clearly still future. Absolutely. All right, so notice the same cosmic signs from the day of the Lord passages are also here. Right? The sun and moon being darkened and stuff. Uh, Jesus will appear to all peoples as he is in the sky. This appearance is not secret in any way. So uh, it will be worldwide, just as lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Who is Jesus getting together with first when he returns? And 31 says that he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from all four winds from one end of the sky to another. Again, something that I don't know how it could be explained took place in the first century. All right. Jesus obviously taught 
um, in accordance with the old covenant prophets who spoke of a future time of tribulation, wrath, and judgment, that this is still yet to come. Next week, we're going to get into Daniel, and we're going to get more of a basic timeline. If you guys see on your handout, you're going to get an opportunity to do some math, so that'll be great. Come back for that. Um, it really will hopefully provide some clarity. Daniel is known as the backbone of biblical prophecy, so uh, it's a great place to really hang some meat on so that we can understand uh, this timeline, what it is that God has, um, not only in the past, but in the future, and how we should better understand that. Any quick thoughts or questions before we wrap up? All right. Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 2, all of Daniel, that's vital. So Daniel's not that long. It'd be good if you guys read Daniel this week in preparation for our study next week. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you again for your sovereignty. Thank you for the fact that you took the wrath that we deserve upon yourself so that we can be uh, in Christ, so that we can rejoice in the coming day of the Lord, so that we cannot um, have to look forward to any wrath or uh, suffering um, as a result of our sin, but we can know that you have paid it all in full, that we are secure and um, hopeful because of you. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.